Welcome to Mountain Meister. It's the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. In today's episode, we'll cover the relationship between people, land, and how we use land. My guest is Dr. Len Nessifer. He's a professor of American Indian Studies and Public Policy at the University of Arizona and a board member of the Honold Foundation, which is Alex Honold's foundation that supports solar energy initiatives to create a more equitable world. Len's newest film is called Welcome to Gwicha Z. It explores the impact of opening up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas development on the Gwich'in people in Northern Alaska in Canada. You know, since the food comes from the land, it's very dependent on the health of the ecosystem and anything that disrupts that balance can very directly impact the survival of people in that part of Alaska. After Len's interview, our company spotlight is with Fisher and Baker, a men's apparel company that uses technical fabrics in casual menswear designs where you really wouldn't expect to find technical fabrics. I'll interview Alexa Stadola and Maggie Malloy about the company. Then roommate Max and I will see if Fisher and Baker is as timeless, purposeful, and functional as they claim to be. Mountain Meister is supported by The Nomadic. It's a subscription box curated by outdoor enthusiasts for outdoor enthusiasts. Each month, you'll get a hand-picked selection of the latest and greatest outdoor products that were all trip-tested by the Nomadic team. It's a bunch of outdoor guides, professional athletes, and bona fide adventurers certified to test gear. There's a new theme each month, and this month they sent the hammock box to me, which, among other things, included this amazing Lawson hammock made exclusively for the Nomadic customers. We have a special deal for our community, Use the code MEISTER for 20% off your first purchase. And I'm not sure how long this is going to last for, so if you're interested, act now. TheNomadic.com slash MEISTER. The, N-O-M-A-D-I-K dot com slash MEISTER for 20% off your first purchase. Now time for my interview with Len Nessifer. And we met in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, where you did your uh, PhD at Carnegie Mellon, uh, where I work. So uh, in what was your PhD? I did my PhD in engineering and public policy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was that was pretty funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was there um, for four and a half years, and I looked at energy policy and how it intersected with uh, indigenous people. And uh, maybe what could you find, or what did you find? I guess over those four and a half years. Uh, <laughs> well, the good stuff is that I found um, that my skills that I was getting could apply to a number of different areas. I mean, I work in um, energy was the lens, but now and today I kind of work more broadly in like sort of land management and indigenous people. Um, energy just happens to be one of those subsets. Recreation is a second subset. Um, and, uh, I, you know, that's sort of, I basically say that my research focus is the intersection of natural resources and indigenous people. And, um, I, I try to mix the fun with the, uh, real work. And, you know, I think that's been one of the great things of working in the outdoor industry is the opportunity to do both. Um, and since leaving, uh, when I was at Carnegie Mellon, I, I looked at pretty deeply the influence and role of culture and how we, 
um, view the environment. And um, I looked at that, of course, through the lens of energy, but I've since applied it to the outdoor space and looking at how, one, do we make this more of an equitable space for many underserved communities, but also how do we can we use the lens as uh, the lens of culture as a way of understanding how we relate to landscapes through outdoor recreation and then also influence policies around um, those different topics. One example that uh, outdoor enthusiasts may be particularly familiar with is Bear's Ears. Uh, and I wanted to start today's conversation by talking about a developing situation that uh, may have similarities to Bear's Ears, although in a very different location. Uh, and that's in northern Alaska and Canada. And this is something that uh, you've been very interested in lately, and you've created a film about it. So could you give us uh, a quick overview of what's going on there? Yeah, so the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge um, in located in north northeastern Alaska. It's a incredibly beautiful place, but it's a place that people have lived for 40,000 years. And, um, you know, this particular work to protect uh, the Arctic Refuge has been going on for three, four decades. And um, we're just seeing the most recent iteration of this of this conservation battle. And what's being proposed by the current administration is op it has been to open up the coastal plain of the Arctic Refuge, which is arguably the most uh, ecologically sensitive part of this area, um, to oil and gas development. And just as the crow flies, it's it's less than 100 miles away from Prudhoe Bay on the north shores of Alaska. Um, however, it's where it, the, the impact that it could have would be in a place um, where the porcupine caribou herd, for example, goes in calves every year. And for people like the Gwich'in, um, their entire identity as a people and um, is tied to the well-being of this animal. And so what we're looking at is basically an indigenous people in a way that and engaging in a larger political battle of how do we protect public lands, how do we engage with, you know, these sort of competing interests of oil and gas development and conservation. Um, and in large part, it's it, the the story is similar to a place like Bears Ears, where in in the case of Bears Ears, five tribes came together, proposed a monument, lobbied the Obama administration, and much in the same way, the Gwich'in people, um, the Gwich'in tribe has lobbied um, a lot, also lobbied the Obama administration, creating making the National Arctic National Wildlife Refuge a national monument, and. Um, uh, in in part, this was to protect these areas from um, extractive development, but still allowing for um, traditional uses by indigenous people like hunting, fishing, etc. Being in northern Alaska, uh, well, they're far away, but they're still Americans. Uh, totally. Why uh, do I not feel uh, maybe as connected to that region? Is it just geographically? Um, you know, culturally, it's it's pretty different. You know, I think one of the things that has um, been a learning process for me in this particular discussion has been um, the role and to and degree to which people depend on the land for um, food and daily life. So, in the in the communities where we worked, the communities often get anywhere between sixty and eighty percent of their food from the land. And, um, you know, when we talk about conservation, like at Bears Ears, a lot of the a lot of the focus has been on um, recreation and also um, 
you know, the cultural elements as well. But I think in Alaska, you have the cultural elements, not as much recreation discussion, but I think a lot more, in my view, is should be placed on the issue of food security. And, you know, since the food comes from the land, it's very dependent on the health of the ecosystem. And anything that disrupts that balance can very directly impact the survival of people in that part of Alaska. When we think about bear's ears... Uh, it's really an incredible story of activism, although uh, it may not have the result at this point that we wanted. Uh, but still, people have a very vested interest, right, uh, in that in that region. Um, in northern Alaska, like you said, the recreation piece isn't as uh, big of a component. So how do you get people to care? Well, I think the entry point is, um, you know, looking at bear's ears, that was something that a lot of people knew about, at least in the recreation scene, outside, not so much. Um, and, you know, I think one of the pieces I've been kind of grappling with is, is this this idea of activism. Like, it's like, it, it's kind of this idea of turning on, turning off, like sort of in, the, in that particular piece. And I think for um, indigenous people in this country, we're kind of born into an identity where basically we keep having to fight for our rights and our sort of recognition that we're people with, you know, rights to uh, identity and culture. And, and I think um, in many ways, we, we really don't have a choice. You know, it's not like we're choosing to be activists on these particular issues. And I think to that point, you know, the one of the things that I um, tend to point to is that uh, what's happening in Bears Ears and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge at the end of the day are human rights issues, in my opinion. And that, you know, that particular framing has been something that um, I did some research on, like, what do Gen Z, the Gen Z generation, as it's being called, um, what are the issues that they're concerned about? And compared to other generations are less concerned about environmental issues comparatively um, there, and then also the knowledge about places like Bears Ears and the Arctic Refuge are pretty low, but the, the issues that do, folks do care about are civil and human rights in that particular generation. And so in our film, you know, we grounded the narrative largely in that human experience. And, um, uh, part of that was also very deliberately not showing sort of the iconic photos of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and the coastal plain and the mountains, et cetera but instead very, very much focusing on people's identity and connection to land to provide an understanding of why this is important to the Gwich'in people. Uh, with the cinematography, yes, it was, it was very much uh, close-ups of faces rather than big views of uh, the landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, interesting. Yeah, that was very deliberate. <laughs> uh-huh. um, can you talk about your background? Uh, I, yeah, we've heard, and I think you've you've said too. It just feels like as you've um, grown up, not only historically in in this country, but also just in your lifetime, uh, it feels like uh, things are constantly be, being taken away from Indigenous people. Uh, so I yeah. wonder if you can talk about uh, your your background. Yeah, my my mom's side of the family is from the Navajo Nation. We grew up uh, in a place called Red Valley, Arizona, and I lived right across the mountain near a place called Canyon de Chez. Um, but you know the the that sort of connection and identity to the land I mainly got through my grandparents and extended family members who were traditional healers and people that relied on the land for their livelihood 
And um, so a lot of, you know, I would go outdoors in large part with them to um, learn those things about how the ecosystem works, how to take care of it, and um, um, also the different medicinal plants that could help me. And um, so that framed a lot of my experiences of being outside, but also um, the other piece of that is I was within an hour of, you know, the designated, I mean, basically Bears Ears National Monument. It was like effectively our backyard growing up. And I spent a lot of time out there. And it's just sort of one of the pieces that's very unique about Bears Ears is the density and prevalence of archaeological sites there. Within the original monument boundary designation, there was there's over 100,000 known archaeological sites within the boundary, which exceeds basically all of the other national park units combined. Um, and, you know, as a Navajo person, not all of these sites were um, my own people. These were ancestral Puebloans largely and like other, the Ute, for example. Um, and, you know, we did have some presence there, but many of the large ruins were from those people. And, and one of the things that I was taught was that, you know, even though that these are not necessarily our people or where we come from, like, we have to take care of them. And um, I think in a large, in a many, in many ways, like the, the, the um, Antiquities Act and the National, and the National Monument designation and very much serves that same purpose. Um, and so, you know, having known that duty to protect these landscapes, protect these archaeological sites, you know, I, in many ways, I learned the importance of how they connected to me as a person and defined me as a person. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's been largely my grounding and um, what brought me into uh, both the Bears Ears discussion and what's happening in the Arctic Refuge as well. Can you think of a time when you were growing up when uh, something was taken away from indigenous people and the impact that it had on oh. Oh my God. <laughs> I think it's when I started learning about what was going on. You know, um, my, my mom's generation went through um, boarding schools and one of the, th these were government mandated boarding schools. And one of the things that they insisted on was assimilating native kids, basically stripping them of their identity um, and um, creating a sense that, you know, the Nav being Navajo was something to be ashamed of. And that's had some pretty disastrous impacts on our people. You know, imagine an entire generation of folks going through that child abuse, sexual abuse is pretty rampant. And, um, you know, and then seeing, you know, having grown up with a mother who one tried her hardest and has kept her identity very rooted in that, in, Nav in being Navajo, um, but also then working to how do we reconnect our people to landscapes when this has been in very many deliberate ways taken away. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the pieces that I think as a young man that happened was I became incredibly angry, um, about that particular history. And then I started learning more about the history of energy development on the Napo nation uh, through my grandfather, who was a uranium miner. And he became, um, uh, incredibly sick from basically pretty negligent safety practices from uranium mining and, um, he lost his left lung to silicosis, and we lived within 20, 30 miles of a coal power plant that would cause an inversion every winter. And, you know, I thought getting a cold was getting bronchitis and, you know, being able to taste the air and like having this 
Um, you know, what I soon learned was, you know, talking about environmental justice and environmental racism and how these things continue to play out. And I think being very much, uh, you know, having these this energy development come at the expense of my community. In many instances, we were left with the pollution, we were left with the messes and often received very little of the benefits. Um, you know, the I remember certain places on the reservation where there would be these large 500 550 kV electricity lines running across the running across the land and right above homes that didn't have any electricity and that all that power was coming from coal power plants on the reservation and um, you know using exorbitant amounts of uh, groundwater to support them and uh, you know I think in the film I mentioned that I, I know what the impacts of energy development would be after seeing them. And, um, you know, I think having been close up, I'm always <laughs> I'm always very skeptical of any sort of natural resource development that says it's going to benefit the local community because I've yet to see that. Coming up, Len will talk about outdoor recreation on native land. But first, a word from our sponsor, Saks Underwear. It's almost summer, and you know what that means. It's time to enjoy the warm weather and let loose. But letting loose should be confined to your personality, not applied to your male anatomy. That's where Saks' Cannonball Swim comes in. As you know, I'm a huge fan of Saks underwear, and I'm excited to tell you that they now have a swim short called the Cannonball Swim. It has the same great features as the underwear, including the ballpark pouch, and it comes in two different lengths, a 9-inch inseam and a 7-inch inseam. Start your summer off right with a fresh pair, and with our partnership, as you know, you get $5 off and free shipping on your first purchase. Just go to SaxUnderwear.com. That's S-A-X-X Underwear.com. Use the code MEISTER at checkout. Again, 5 bucks off and free shipping with MEISTER at checkout. SaxUnderwear.com. And thanks. So far, we've talked uh, mostly, I guess, about the conflict between uh, indigenous people and natural resource development or some sort of energy development. Uh, but historically, there's also been conflict between uh, more of like recreation, outdoor recreation uh -huh. development or land use. Um, yeah. Where where does that sit today? Um, it's still there. I mean, I'm still like even to this day, like. On my community, uh, in my community, there's places like Spider Rock and Ship Rock, and um, places that were historically climbed without pretty much without conflict. And then um, there were some political tides that turned within the reservation and historical circumstances, and led to my tribe, in particular, banning um, climbing across the reservation. And uh, and you know, I and, and sort of in retrospe retrospectively looking at. <laughs> maybe doing some revisionist history, I don't know, but looking at some of the conflict in, in the research that I've done, I could see a pretty stark line between the cultural sort of orientations of how we interact with landscapes. And I think some of the early climbers um, that were coming out to the res had this very much this sense in, of conquest and wanting to conquer these rocks. And I, I know for a fact for many Navajo people, that's pretty detestable and gross. Um, but I mean, that's that was in large part the conflict is that there's just kind of these varying views on how we interact with these landscapes, and um, so 
you know, I can look there. There's been climbing incidents around or conflict around Devil's Tower, also known as Bears Lodge. Um, some other places in Cave Rock, um, rafting, boating, you know, just these, in, in many ways, um, what's happened with recreation is like, uh, I would almost say a less impactful form of natural resource use that's had conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I think what, at the end of the day, there's just, you have an interaction of two peoples and cultures that very much view, um, natural resource fundamentally different. And I don't, I, I think with the, the thing with, um, energy resource development is, is that it's pretty, the impacts can be pretty, environmental impacts can be pretty large and, um, in some ways pretty irreversible, um, recreation less so, but I think that one of the pieces that I'm beginning to look at is how do you view, uh, you know, how do you bridge the divide between two cultures around recreation? Because at the end of the day, um, every people and cultures has spent time outside and like creates an identity based upon those interactions. And, um, you know, the, largely the work that I've been looking at is, you know, how do we, how do native tribes use culture or outdoor recreation to, um, address many of the needs of our community. One of them is cultural revitalization. Many of our cultures are based in landscapes and, um, the traditional economies that got us outdoors are not there in the same way. Um, and I think outdoor rec can provide a vehicle for that, which that can happen. Um, public health is another component and like, how do we promote healthy lifestyles and people to be outside? And then, um, the last one is economic development. I think looking at um, you know, outdoor record will never replace the sort of pay that was happening at, for example, at the coal mines and uranium mines on the Navajo Nation, but, um, it still provides a form of employment and, uh, uh, a livelihood that can keep people in communities, which has been another challenge that we've had is just a, a challenge with brain drain. Um, uh, you, you're speaking to many different outdoor consumers right now, some of which may recreate, uh, in these regions, what do you want myself to know? What do you want uh, outdoor enthusiasts to know about, um, like what they should be thinking about? I suppose. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's been really interesting is that there's some tribes that you can visit reservations for sure, um, and some tribes um, have areas where tourism or outdoor rec is totally totally fine. And um, uh, you know, I think there's kind of this perceptions that reservations are close places, which they can be, and it depends on the tribe, but, you know, doing quick research on looking at, uh, for example, Navajo Nation has places where people can go hike and do different things like that, um, is one opportunity to engage. And then also just, uh, you know, potentially understanding that, you know, these conflicts between tribes and like natural or, um, outdoor rec users, they're more complicated and they can basically be come down to significant cultural differences and i'm not trying to say one's right or one's wrong but i think in sort of trying to build out that complexity of like if a tribe said this is a sacred area i think um one of the things that i've seen it's just getting it getting dismissed mm -hmm. without giving it a sort of a deeper consideration um and at the end of the day you know i think why i say this is because what we saw with bears ears was um i i believe an important precedent that we can't let go was that tribes um, work to protect this landscape from um, natural resource extraction, but in the process, they also worked very directly with user groups like climbers and um, 
you know, raft guides, et cetera, to ensure that these um, uh, pursuits were still protected under the monument. And I think that's an example of where there's a lot more in common than there is in difference, but it's just ensuring that, you know, each we can exp- we can respect where each of us comes from, I think has been, I think the shift that I'm hoping to implement. Can you talk a little bit about your work with the Honold Foundation? I think people after maybe seeing Free Solo uh, or just online have seen what the Honold Foundation uh, does. What do you do there? Um, so I'm a board member um, and um, Alex Honnold, uh, is has been giving away, um, not giving away, but putting away a pretty significant chunk of his income into this foundation. And the main, the, our, our mission statement is um, promoting solar energy for a more equitable world. And um, this has traditionally looked like giving grants um, to organizations that work in underserved communities that um, uses and addresses, uses and implements solar energy to um, address issues of equity. And so we've worked in... Um, places like Angola and Ethiopia, and now we're going to be um, branching out and doing work in places like um, uh, Puerto Rico, for example, mm-hmm. where um, after Hurricane Maria, there was, you know, communities that lost powers for days. And this had a you know, pretty huge impact on things like public health. People couldn't um, store insulin and didn't have places to um, charge a cell phone. And, and so there's, there's, um, organization down there that we'll be working with called Casa Pueblo and they um, they basically have an off-grid solar um, a building that's basically a, an islanded solar grid so we're working there um, and then also considering projects in in Alaska and elsewhere and so my role in in on the board is largely since since I worked in the Department of Energy and I had done grant making work before is um, one providing a understanding and a sense of that framework of how do we do this on the foundation side because mm-hmm. uh, thanks thankfully it's a lot less complicated if you're a foundation compared to the federal government to give money away um, but also um, helping the executive director whose name is Dory Trimble to um, one make connections and um, uh, create like uh, working um, bit relationships with um, grant potential grantees and communities where we feel we can make the most impact. Um, I wanted to ask you this question earlier. Hopefully you don't take it the wrong way. Uh, so I see that you used to work for the Department of Energy's Office of Indian Energy Policy and Programs. Uh-huh. And it seems like that would be the exact position that you'd want to be in to make a difference in some of the issues that you're talking about. But you left that job. Why did you leave it? Um, because we as... The cogs in the machine don't make the decisions, <laughs> but uh, no, the the offices it has um, um, political appointees. So, like our office basically has a, a, a director, a deputy director, and then um, the staffing folks that work below. And it's the um, it's the director up top who's selected by the White House to fill that role um, that sets the policy direction. Um, and so I was not in that role directly, so I don't, I didn't set, I wasn't able to set um, any policy roles. And then we also went through a number of very, um, I don't know how to put it lightly, very incompetent sets of directors that were, um, I don't think, well vetted and had 
some serious baggage that they brought into the office and that led them to resign. So um, it just became increasingly dysfunctional. And, um, you know, being a uh, basically a researcher and grant manager, I was I largely I was my role was to implement policy that came from above. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it just, um, you know, if I could become the director, I don't, I, in this day and age, I don't think my resume would make it past the first glance <laughs> in this administration. Mm. What, um, so. obviously people have differing political opinions. Uh, do you mm-hmm. think that the, uh, the structure, the way that it is now is, an appropriate one, or is there uh, something better, or more efficient that we could be doing in that office? Uh, yes, or maybe in policy making as a whole. Given that people, like obviously, you had a differing political opinion than your boss. Uh, yeah, I'm, is there a I better think, way that this can be structured? Um, you know, I think one of the things that um, you know, I went when the election change happened. Like, I was pretty open to working with the new administration. <laughs> Just because historically, um, Republicans have been better for tribes than Democrats, just speaking historically, that's been the case. That's often meant more funding, that's meant more um, uh, sort of latitude for tribes to exert tribal sovereignty. And so like knowing that historical context, I said, hey, this might not be a bad thing. Um, But what I quickly saw was that um, the folks that were installed in our office were not had zero background in tribes and much less energy topics, and um, you know, and I think in large part there was just they couldn't find folks to work in that office, you know, and they they wouldn't hire internally either and promote internally. They wanted to install someone from the outside, and so you know, these 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 sort of mid level um, deputy appointments matter, like they really do have an impact on policy and, and um, directions of programs. And so historically in our office still does work on giving grants to an Indian country, but the amount has been limited because of acts of Congress. And um, also our focus has shifted away from renewables to looking at all energy resources, which I don't think is a problem. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things is that I really grappled with is that in the Alaska native communities that we were working in, you know, climate change is a very real thing. Like I've been there and I've seen it and those communities talk about it directly. Um, and you know, that's from basically like sea ice is, or ice is melting a month and a half early. They're having like above freezing days during the winter, which is incredibly bizarre. And, you know, these are, this is impacting them pretty directly. And so I, I was doing research with the office in which, we were talking about these impacts, like the impacts of climate change in rural Alaskan communities. And that particular um, report was put on the table and basically silenced. And it still sits on uh, one of the uh, uh, director's office or tables today, you know, because it's too politically contentious in this administration to mention climate change. But this is what people were telling us, you know, it's not like we were Inserting, inserting our own opinion. We're just relaying what is what was told. And, um, you know, I think, um, I, I think there is an incredible value to, um, uh, putting folks in these positions that have the competence and knowledge and skill sets to do it efficiently and effectively. And, you know, if we want to make and look how to make government more efficient and like 
more lean, it's actually better to have someone that knows what they're doing in the in the in the decision making chair because you know, I saw lots of money getting wasted on things that didn't have a lot of benefit but benefit for the public good. So and and quite honestly, I think that was in because of the directors not really knowing what they were doing. Well, thank you. That's uh, very interesting to hear. I'm glad. I'm, I'm happy to hear it from somebody on the inside. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, two more questions for you. Uh, first is a gear recommendation. We get one from all of our guests. Uh, I'd like you to recommend one piece of outdoor gear. Maybe it's uh, unique or something we haven't heard of, or it could be just a classic piece of gear that you would recommend to our listeners. Yeah, some of our products, uh, shameless plug, Natives Outdoors is doing a chalk pack this year, so we have some of those coming. Um, uh, so we have that product, and you know, we, we dedicate 5% to um, give back to Native communities, and so we are a 1% for the planet member, um, and we just ensure that we you know, our products do good. Um, the other, um, piece of gear I was gifted that had a, was really awesome was the black diamond solution harness, which is like, uh, it's the Alex Honnold version, but, um, that product, uh, and the chalk bag, there's a chalk bag and a harness, um, a portion of that, the sales of each of those go to, um, the Honnold Foundation. So it's like a way in which it's giving back. And like, I've actually really like the harness. I um, had never had a black diamonds harness before. And it's been really great. That's great. We'll put those on your Meister profile on our website. Uh, we'll also have the link to the film Welcome to the Gwitcha Z on our website as well. Uh, the final question for you is who would you like to hear next on Mountain Meister? Your today's Mountain Meister. Uh. Who's our next one? Oof. Um, I think one guy. It's getting yeah. tough. One, one, uh, one person. You're, I think, our 214th episode. So. Oh man. Um, I think one person that might be really cool is um, uh, a graphic designer that we've worked with pretty closely. His name's Vernon Key, but he's a marine vet and. Uh, um, it just has really taken on doing outdoor rec, um, and bringing it to the Navajo nation. Wow. And, um, um, but he's, <laughs> this, the other part of what he's done is that he's also one of the first, well, I mean, he's, he lives in a, a transit van and, um, you know, he lives on the Navajo nation and in this van and he just has these hilarious stories of, um, <laughs> folks, um, thinking that he's like medical transport, for example. And so asking him for rides to the hospital and he's like, no, this is my house. Um, or, you know, people asking him if he can move some, uh, sheep or goats or something in the van. It's really great. He, but he's, um, he just completed a 55 day Knowles course. Um, and he's basically get, he just wanted to get the tools to become an outdoor educator. And so now he's like, fully equipped to do like multi-pitch climbs and all kinds of stuff. So he's really, he's a really cool guy. I, this is crazy. I What's his name again? Vernon Key. Vernon Key. Okay. We'll keep an ear out for Vernon Key on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Uh, sounds like a very entertaining episode as was this one. Thank you, Len Nessifer. Uh, you can find out more. We'll have links on our website, mtnmeister.com. Thank you, Len. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for the opportunity. Mm. 
Len Nessifer, professor of Native American Studies at the University of Arizona, CEO and founder of Natives Outdoors, board member of Honold Foundation, American Alpine Club, and a few other things in the outdoor industry, very involved. Links to everything we talked about in his interview, including the film Welcome to Gwichazee on our website, mtnmeister.com. Next up on the show is our company spotlight segment. In our company spotlights, we feature lesser known outdoor brands in a brief interview and then gear review. Companies are not allowed to pay to be featured on this segment because then we can remove the financial interest and be completely honest with you. We don't feel like we owe anything to the brand if they don't pay us. Today's brand is Fisher & Baker. It's a seven person company based out of Minneapolis. It makes timeless menswear with technical fabrics. I spoke with Alexa Stadola and Maggie Malloy. Well, the whole company started back in 2016. Our founder, Greg, was working, having a lot of meetings and offices, and then also had young kids and wanted to figure out a way that he could wear his clothing, you know, from the office to um, events at night and a way to make that functional for him, but also something that he would feel comfortable wearing throughout the day and something that was stylish and that he felt confident in. Um, so that's how Fisher & Baker was born. It was born out of kind of the necessity to find something that was functional, but also timeless in style. So you touched on it a little bit there, but there are also other companies out there that are uh, trying to bridge this uh, gap between working or uh, getting from work to somewhere else quickly and in good technical fashion. So what makes Fisher and Baker unique? I think the fact that we use extremely technical, but also super high quality fabrics is where we differentiate ourselves and also using very timeless style. Um, if you look at our products, we make primarily outerwear, shirtings, sweaters, knits, um, and then we are starting to do shorts um, and other things in the future. <laughs> I, can't, I can't get anything away, but um, yeah, I think definitely the quality of things that we produce is where we differentiate yourself. And then also the fact that we have a, um, a lifetime warranty for our outerwear kind of just shows you the quality and how much we believe in our product. Wow. That's amazing. I didn't know that. A lifetime warranty. On the outerwear. So beyond, this is, I don't want this to sound like a stupid question, but beyond <laughs> putting technical fabrics into casual menswear, what kind of thought or foresight do you need to have in order to make casual menswear with technical fabrics? Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a good question. Um, so for us, we are always thinking about when we, when we create new products, we're always thinking about the end consumer. And for us, uh, we like to call our guy the modern man. So a modern man in his daily life wants a product that has versatility as well as comfort. So, um, you know, when we create each product, we're asking how would they be wearing this product in their daily life? Cause that's really what it's about for us. And, um, you know, we're not just using the functional materials and the, you know, the timeless menswear silhouette. We're also thinking about constructional details. So for us, that's the, you know, in our everyday cashmere t-shirts, we have a dual, uh, dual seamed shoulder panel 
instead of having a single seam on the top of the shoulder. And, you know, that's just to make life a little bit easier. If you're carrying a shoulder bag, you're traveling, you're going to work in the morning and, um, you know, you're not going to have that seam rubbing at the top of your shoulder. So that's just one of many examples for how we elevate the product, not only through those functional materials, but also through the construction. The price of your products is pretty high, I have to say, at least compared to what I'm used to buying. Um, can you talk about what kind of fabrics you're using? And I'm, I'm sure that goes into the cost. You've mentioned like high, uh, highly technical fabrics, but I think some of our listeners may have heard of these materials. Totally. So some of our favorite ones to highlight are, um, you know, in that anorak that you tested, the Greenwich anorak, we use ventile cotton. So one of the things that we're always thinking about, like I mentioned, is that ex, um, that added comfort. So, you know, we're not making a, an anorak with that typical swishy outdoor material. It's really supposed to feel nice on your skin um, and make you feel like you're wearing almost a normal everyday jacket or outerwear piece, even though it does protect you from pretty much all the elements. <laughs> um, and that is, yeah. So ventile cotton is, was originally designed for the British Royal Air Force. And it's a long strand cotton fabric that has an extra tight weave together. So that's how it repels the rain so well. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what's on the, what's on the inside, the inside layer? So the inside is a moisture wicking thermoregulating merino wool. And it's a very light merino wool, but because it has that um, that wool in it, it gives you increased um, insulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really liked the the inner layer as well. That's great. Um, okay, so I always forget to ask this before the interview, and I don't think we got an official answer from you yet. Are, are you able to offer our listeners a discount if you'd like? Yes, we are. We are offering a 15% discount uh, with the code that you gave us, Meister. All right. 15% off with Meister. Yes. And that's good through and um, through Labor Day. Oh, excellent. Okay. So uh, pretty much all summer, you can use the code Meister, 15% off. You said you're launching shorts. Are they out? They are. Oh, great. It's our classic hybrid short. Okay. That's 15% off with Meister at Fisher and Baker, F-I-S-H-E-R and Baker, B-A-K-E-R.com. Alexa and Maggie, thanks for joining. Thank you of so course. much. Thanks for having us. Now that you know a little more about the brand, hear what Max Littlefield and I thought of the products that Fisher and Baker sent us. Uh, we are here with roommate ex-roommate max littlefield hey max oh heavy ben ex-roommate why not just like old roommate max? old roommate max that's better <laughs> far better uh and we are here to review fisher and baker two pieces uh the greenwich anorak and the camden shirt uh the greenwich anorak is kind of a hoodie i guess an anorak is a style of clothing it's like a, this piece of clothing which is like a half zip pullover with a hood on it and then we uh, tried out the Camden shirt, which is uh, about, it's like a dress shirt with a cotton and merino blend. It's a great shirt. I thought it was great. Um, mm -hmm. So Max, let's start with the shirt. The shirt, the Camden shirt. Um, so I've been wearing this shirt 
for I would say the last month on and off. I haven't I have worn other shirts, don't worry, Ben. But you know, I've been wearing this one a bit bike commuting to and from work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been sort of like a good mix of active and also professional for this piece, I think. Um, yeah, really like the shirt. The material is super nice. Uh, I get a little sweaty on the way to work, but um, it's not not like absorbent like cotton is. I, I can feel the wool a lot better uh, than a lot of my other button-up shirts. Um, and yeah, the way it looks is pretty standard cut for a nice dress shirt. I would say the one thing that I struggle with a little bit is that it's tight in the cuff and forearm. Hmm. Um, but that's sort of like a personal thing. I guess I just have yoked forearms, but you know, <laughs> say la vie. <laughs> What'd you think? Uh, yeah, it's very similar feelings. Loved it. Uh, the sleeves were a little long for me, but that's almost always the case with dress shirts. So I think the fit is pretty perfect. Forearms aren't quite as yoked as yours, so I was pretty (laughs) pleased with the fit there. Uh, And yeah, uh, after a wash, it doesn't really shrink too, too much. Uh, It says 42% cotton. So, but yeah, it doesn't doesn't shrink too much. Um, And yeah, really liked it. Um, Let's go to the Anorak. The Anorak. Um, It's funny because I I usually wear these pieces in tandem. Um, I find Mm -hmm. that this uh, this pullover, it's, it's like a hybrid rain jacket. I don't know. There's a little bit of insulation to it, so it can be worn in inclement weather. I, that's something that irks me a lot of the time about raincoats is like, they're nice, but you know, sometimes you need a fleece underneath or that extra layer. Whereas bulky. this jacket, yeah, this look, jacket, hate, like, yeah, I hate when I, rain jackets, <laughs> when it, you look bulky under a rain jacket. It's so right, right, right. Yeah. 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 So this one, like I'll wear this rain jacket and, uh, that button up shirt, the Camden shirt mm-hmm. and be perfect for work like all day. No yeah. worries. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's plenty waterproof. Plenty warm. Uh, it also like looks great. I, I think it's probably the best looking rain jacket I've ever had. It's a really sharp looking piece, uh, and I think like the range and temperature that you can wear this and be comfortable is probably forty five to sixty five degrees. What do you think? Yeah, I was actually going to say something a little colder. colder. I would say okay. forty to sixty degrees. The one thing that it's missing is a pit zip but i think that's indicative of what this piece is you know it's Mm -hmm. definitely for the colder rainier days um and very very waterproof in my experience so far i mean like i just kind of like shake shake myself and the water just beads off of me (laughs) uh it's really amazing i i'm guessing that will go away over time uh it has a dwr finish on it uh which those tend to uh disappear over time right. when you wash it and uh just wear and tear but the uh in my interview earlier they were telling me about this very tight tightly woven cotton that they use uh, uh interesting so that may be part of it as well and then i too loved the uh the insulation which is it's barely an insulation it's more of just like another layer of merino wool um and it's uh so soft yeah super soft mm-hmm. right Mm-hmm. It's really uh, liked it. Yeah. Um, but what do we not <laughs> like about these products next? <laughs> uh, can I give one more plug for a positive? I think yes, the build yeah. quality of this is super strong. Yeah. The zippers are like impeccable. Like when you feel a, a nice zipper, it's like, wow, this is super sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, 
zippers are really nice. The internal aligner is really nice. Um, and the pockets are also like, I don't know. I appreciate a good pocket. So mm-hmm. that was high on my list. Um, to speak to some things that I really don't enjoy about this jacket, I'll, I'll start with some less obvious ones, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we're on the same page for most of it. Um, the pullover isn't my favorite thing. What I would want is there. So the way this jacket is is designed, there's a side zip that goes yeah. from your right hip to your right, um, you know, third rib or middle rib. I would want to see that zipper longer. That's mm-hmm. what I was going to say is that if that went up to maybe my armpit um, or even, I don't know, just below, I think that I, I also don't know what design issues that would cause, but I think that would help me with my issue of, of taking it on and off. Um, I see. Okay. That, I was wondering why I barely use that feature. Ah, uh, see, whenever I got to work every day, I would be taking this thing off. And my biggest pet peeve is when my shirt comes untucked. I see. And like showing that midriff mid morning is not cool then. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's like one, one thing of the design that wasn't impeccable to me. And, for the price point of this jacket, I, I would want it to be absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. The price mm-hmm. of this jacket is $498, which is a lot. And the price <laughs> of the shirt is 158 which is also a lot. But uh, as you can tell, Max and I are both really happy with the quality of it. Um, uh, one question that we address is, would you pay for this with your own money? Um, I wrote down a note and said... If you're the kind of person who cares about how you look and you want a tasteful, timeless, and subtle look, this stuff is for you. I want that look, but there's no way I could get myself to pay for that look. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll just keep on looking not quite as good as the person who wears Fisher and Baker. (laughs) (laughs) That's excellently put. Thank you. Um, I, I thought like the whole time I was wearing this jacket, I was like, if, if I got this as a graduation gift yeah, or yeah. if I got this for my birthday, I would be fired up. That being said, I don't think I could justify buying this mm-hmm. for myself. Um, I'm, that's just the kind of guy I am. I'm, I'm selfless. Maybe I would buy it for somebody else, but I don't <laughs> think I could buy it for me. <laughs> nice. Yeah, but and you would have this piece for decades, I think. I don't know. It, it seems oh, yeah. like something that you, you'll yeah you'll have for a while. Totally, totally. Well, they are giving a discount, fifteen percent off, uh, with Meister. So fifteen percent off of five hundred dollars. Quick math. I think that's seventy five dollars. So sure. Solid discount. Um, that's it. Fisherandbaker.com. Uh, roommate Max. Former, what were we saying? Old roommate Max. Old roommate Max. (laughs) But young at heart. Thank you for joining. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Ben. That's all for today's episode of Mountain Meister. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget, check out the Nomadic, an outdoor subscription box that helps you discover the hottest brands and the freshly launched gear. They deliver monthly themed boxes with innovative products an outdoor challenge, and up to two times the retail value compared to what you would have paid. TheNomadic.com slash Meister. If you have any small brands that you think would be a good fit for our company spotlights, send me an email, ben at mtnmeister.com. Till the next time you hear my voice, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever else you do while you listen to this podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shank. 
Thanks for listening to Mountain Meister. 